for negotiators, the, 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 you know, the, the easy takeaway is that you know, the, the early choices matter a lot. And starting with something that is more acceptable to the other side, getting them to accept is going to make them more open yeah. to considering accepting subsequent things. That's on Amir, talking about the importance of the sequencing of issues within a negotiation. Decisions are not made in a vacuum, but are highly influenced by previous decisions that were made. On received his PhD in Management Science and Marketing from MIT Sloan School of Management and is a professor of marketing at UC San Diego. On's research focuses on using psychological and economic principles to identify successful strategies in different market settings. He investigates different customer decision-making mechanisms and their influences on pricing and promotion strategies on decision-making under risk and uncertainty, and on preference dynamics. He also writes about how insights from research on decision-making and behavioral economics may be used to improve business practices and policy-making. On has been retained as an expert witness and testified at deposition in numerous cases. On has received several research awards from the Marketing Science Institute and from the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation. I'm Warren Hoffman, and in this episode of Conflict, Power, and Persuasion, we dig into decision-making in negotiations. Topics discussed include homo economicus, system one and system two thinking, prospect theory, the best way to motivate a group to reach agreement, the starting problem and goal gradients, the effects of resource depletion on decision-making, cognitive biases including the attraction and compromise effects, anchoring opening offers and using reference points in negotiations, how to limit cognitive biases and make better decisions, the ethics and applications of choice architecture, and much more. This is Conflict, Power, and Persuasion, podcast of the Canadian International Institute of Applied Negotiation. Hi, On. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Warren. My pleasure. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Can you provide a, a brief description of your professional background and uh, research interests? Wow. Um, so I'm a professor at the UC San Diego Rady School of Management, I'm professor of marketing, and um, I've taught in lots of other places in the past before, formerly at Yale, I did my PhD at MIT in management science, uh, focusing on marketing, economics, psychology, and statistics. And um, my research is all about decision-making. Let's get into that. And let's start with uh, who or what is uh, homo economicus? Um, and the who or what is actually a great question. So you know, it, it might not be news to you and, and, and your audience, but the world is pretty much run by uh, people who follow economic models. Um, we can get into that, into why, if, if that's interesting. Um, and most uh, economic models make uh, assumptions as every model does. And the assumptions about people in economic models are pretty well-defined and specific, but very far from reality. But the person described by the assumptions running a lot of our world is, is this theoretical entity called homo economicus. Mm -hmm. 
And what are the assumptions about Homo economicus? Well, Homo economicus is a self-interested being that is able to process an infinite amount of information. And um, the result of that processing leads to the optimal behavior, the optimal decision, um, the optimal choice um, that this um, entity, let's call it an agent, uh, engages with. Mm -hmm. So this is what um, a lot of the models were based on. Now, if we're not operating as rational decision makers, uh, can you paint a picture of how people actually decide, you know, to what extent is our judgment in decision-making flawed? Well, you know, flaw, let's, let's stay away from the flawed for a second. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but let's say that we can easily map out ways in which people are different than this homo economicus um, theoretical agent. Uh, for one, we can't process infinite, amount, infinite amounts of information. Uh, two, we don't actually have access to all of our processing. So we might do things without even knowing why. And I can give examples of that. There are classics, um, uh, classical examples about that. And in some ways, relative to a self-interest utility maximizing agent, our decisions would seem flawed, but that's, you know, it's a philosophical argument, whether that's in fact a flaw or whether we care about things that Homo economicus doesn't. So you mentioned there's some classical, let's, let's give some examples and uh, I'm assuming running on autopilot here. What are some just classical examples of everyone sort of how, how, how we're operating here? Yeah. So, so an easy example is, um, there was a display of socks in a store. So 10 types of socks in different bins. They were all black socks. People were brought in to, uh, to buy them. And once they picked a sock, they were asked to explain why. And people came up with lots of quality uh, explanations and things like that. And not a single person said that they picked the one on the left. Uh, but all the socks were the same in this experiment. So any explanation about quality and, and, and how it felt is, is uh, pardon my French, completely bullshit. Um, and, uh, and people just didn't, were not aware of the fact that since they read from left to right, they started processing the socks from left to right and you just pick the first one. Uh. Um, you know, there's, there's an, an, another nice example where friends of mine went to a bar and uh, added balsamic vinegar balsamic vinaigrette, I think, to beer. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that so sound uh, even blasphemous. <laughs> yeah. It tastes better. So people who drank that beer reported the beer being much better and were very happy to buy another and even pay more for it. Mm -hmm. People who were, who were told before tasting that they should add balsamic vinaigrette to the beer, they were appalled. But if they tasted the beer and then were asked if they want to add, they said, sure, we're going to add it because it actually tastes better. Now, you can't make money off this because balsamic vinaigrette is way more expensive than beer uh, per ounce. But that means that we don't actually, you know, we don't know 
parts of our processing are sort of top down and parts are bottom up. And we don't know how something might feel beforehand where we were basing that perception on preconceptions. What Ed Balsamic Benetto beer, that sounds horrible. Turns out it's not horrible. Once you tasted it, you know, but if you don't, you don't know. And you're working based on your theories that could be um, inaccurate. Um, and then another classic example is that um, they, they put people in an fMRI, which is a magnetic resonance that looks at brain activity, and they piped a drink to their, uh, to their mouth so they could drink. Uh, these were Coke drinkers, and they piped Coke, um, and they monitored activation uh, in the parts of the brain that, um, that respond to pleasure. Mm-hmm. What's interesting was that they had a screen in front of them, and they showed them the logo of Coke. Activation in the pleasure center started way before the drink was actually piped. Just seeing the logo uh. activated the pleasure centers that activate when you drink Coke, if you're a Coke drinker. And that created the, the bias. Um, would that be an example of uh, the halo effect? Yeah. So the halo effect of the brand. So yes. if you put Pepsi drinkers in the same experiment, you don't get the activation center from the logo of Coke. Yes. Before we move forward, maybe it's a good time if you could just give an overview of um, system one and system two processing. Are you able to give a quick... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of models that model how we make decisions. Many of the common models describe two systems that operate at the same time. Um, there, there's at least 15 different ones, a, a common one, and then they overlap and they vary in small things that are, that are not always interesting. A common one is called system one, system two. That means that we have two, uh, and, and, and of course, these are, these are models, right? These are descriptions of, of, of what we see in people's behavior. Yeah. Um, so two systems work at the same time. A lot of our activity, think about looking, think about smelling, think about uh, driving. Uh, you're, not, you're not thinking about you know, how, what angle does, should your foot be when you press the accelerator, but, but you do it automatically because you're used to it and you've learned that response. Those kind of things would be under system one. These are things that we've pretty much automated and because we automated them, we don't have to spend a lot of resources thinking about them. And they operate all the time. So when you're negotiating with somebody and they smile, you're going to feel better about it. Um, you're going to maybe even smile yourself as a mimicry response. Those are system one responses. Mm-hmm. At the same time, system one, because it's automated, it's not really paying attention to all the small, fine details. And for that, we have system two. So system two is think of it as kind of, I have a limited resource of attention and and processing capacity, and I can allocate it to anything specific, but when I allocate it to something, I don't have that resource for something else. And system two is sort of the, the, the inspector, right? It can override automatic system one responses. So we have this kind of low cost, ongoing automatic system that responds to the world, and then we have a costly, limited capacity um, manager, if you will, that basically can override the automatic responses. Right. That's helpful. Now, they interact as well. Are, could, could, we, could you maybe 
use that to explain uh, you know just quickly the balsamic or the the coke image is that a a system one registering in system one and then interacting with system two yeah so if you think about the balsamic vinegar vinaigrette example your reaction to the mixing of beer and balsamic vinaigrette is, is automatic, right? It's like, it doesn't sound good, right? It doesn't yeah. feel good. It's, it's, it's weird. Um, and therefore you're not going to uh, do it. Now system two at that point doesn't have information. Once you've tasted the beer, if somebody asks you to add it, your system one response is going to be like, Oh no, that's, that's not good. But you just say, wait a minute. I just tasted it. It's actually really good. So you override that, but maybe repulsion response right? and say, no, I'm actually willing to pay for it because it was very good. Right. Right. Okay. That's helpful. Okay. Let's, uh, I think we've got the, the, the basics down. Let's move into some of the specifics here. Let's, well, a, a key component of every negotiation is choosing between different options. Um, so I'd like to talk about some of the pitfalls to be aware of around the process of choosing. And let's start with a paper you co-authored in 2017. It was a reference escalation in sequential choice. And the first line of the abstract reads, most would agree that the decision to purchase a new book should not be influenced by a previous decision over hand soap most would be wrong. <laughs> Can you describe the findings presented in, in that paper? Yeah. So, um, you know, choice doesn't happen in isolation. And if you think about the negotiation, it's not usually a single decision. It's a series of, of choices and decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and it turns out that for lots of reasons, these choices are not independent. So what this paper specifically looks at, if you've accepted something, the other side made an offer, you've accepted it, Um, you are now more likely to accept the next thing in the discussion and vice versa. If you rejected something, you are more likely to reject the next one. That's because one of the things, you know, if you want to talk about the basics is we know that unlike the homo economicus, which can evaluate everything in an absolute sense. So so you look at something new and you know exactly how much it's valued. Somebody makes an offer and you know exactly why it's good and why it's bad and everything and how it fits relative to everything else in the world. We can't do that. People can't do that. And so our our choices, our valuations, our judgments are actually relative. In that sense, you know, Einstein was right. Everything's relative. Mm -hmm. So for example, an offer of $100 might seem fantastic if, if the previous offer was 50, but it would seem terrible if the previous offer was a thousand, mm-hmm. right? And so the pre, what, you know, what we saw previously and, what, and, and more importantly, what we decided previously has an impactful subsequent effect on how you see the world because you've updated your sort of relative threshold for acceptance, if you want to think about it like that. If I reject, that sort of, that brings the world down more towards rejections because relatively speaking, I've already rejected something and the world kind of changes from gray to more black and white. So for the subsequent decision, it's more clearly what is black and what is white clearly defined than than absent that previous decision. Mm -hmm. For negotiators, the, the, the easy takeaway is that you know the, the early choices matter a lot, and starting with something that is more acceptable to the other side 
getting them to accept is going to make them more open yeah. to considering accepting subsequent things. It's a great tip and uh, incredibly interesting as well. But any insights on why that happens? I mean, you've sort of touched on it, but is there? Yeah. Um, so, so I touched on it. The, the idea is that, and this is, you know, I'll, I'll qualify this, all these kind of um, effects we find, they happen in contexts where there's, where there's some preference uncertainty, right? There's some wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the homo economicus has no uncertainty whatsoever. Most people do. Most decision makers do. Uh, a very famous researcher used to give this example. Uh, if you're a parent, uh, being the, the, the parent escort to your kid's school trip, is that positive? Is that negative? You know, it really depends on how you think about it. Yeah. Um, and so many important things in life, we don't actually have an exact sense of their value to us. And in that world, making a decision sort of puts a stamp of, of, of relative value on the current context. And, and that stamp that sort of updates what we call the reference point, that seems to be the thing driving the, the, the effect of one choice on a subsequent choice, even if it's not about exactly the same thing. Interesting. And the, the reference point can be as simple as a, agreement. Um, th- this, this is agreeable. And that, that's, that's an example of a reference point in this situation. Yes. Okay. So in terms of choosing sequence is incredibly important. Any other issues to be aware of when making choices? Well, there are thousands, but let me just add one more point for the sequence. One sure. thing to be aware of is that in the world of, of decision-making in general, negatives outweigh positives. So rejections have a bigger effect on subsequent choices than acceptances. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why it's sort of it's very costly to start out with something that's going to be rejected. And that's touching on prospect theory? Right. So prospect theory is one uh, famous, very famous instantiation of, of a model that deviates from the homo economicus with respect to risk, with respect to gambles, with respect to choices that involve risk. And prospect theory has several important components. One of them, the most important one, is that value is reference dependent. Yeah. Nobody evaluates stuff in absolute. It's all relative to some reference point. And the second one is this asymmetry between gains and losses, where departure from the reference point high, so sorry, up where you're in the gains domain is nice, but departure to, to, to kind of to the lower, below the reference point, what we might call a loss is very painful. Many like to think of it as at least twice as painful as something good is, is mm-hmm. great. Um, and we see that we see the same pattern in the sequential choice. The rejections have a much larger effect than acceptances. Wow. Um, so, so in that sense, it probably taps into the same psychophysics that the prospect theory value function represents. Interesting. Okay. I'm sure other examples will come up here, but let's move on to goals and motivation um, for now. So negotiations and mediations, they're often multi-issue and it's pretty common to move around from issue to issue, um, sort of in a non-linear manner to um, not get back bogged down on a contentious issue hitting an impasse, but to sort of maintain some momentum and motivation towards the end goal, which would be reaching a final agreement. 
So in a sense, the issues can be thought as sub goals, which are being addressed, creating these small wins um, while building rapport and giving some certainty of progression and moving towards that final agreement. You've done work on this topic as well. Is there anything a mediator, facilitator, negotiator, or even you know, a project manager should be mindful of in terms of motivation while working through a number of sub-goals? Yeah. So, you know, when I first presented that work years ago, a very famous psychologist uh, by the name of Robert Cialdini uh, said, you know, that's just like my mother. I said, what? He said, every time I came back with a midterm, and I was proud. I got a good grade on the midterm. My mother said, yeah, okay, you know, that's nice. But the, but the final really is the thing that matters. Um, and, and that's the idea that you can get bogged down by, by, by success on sub-goals, right? Like, just like you, you said, you don't want to get bogged down on, on issues that are contentious. Achieving a sub-goal can have a negative effect on motivation because you basically rest on your laurels. And the goal of whoever is directing the discussion is to keep everyone focused on the end goal in a manner that um, is productive. And what do I mean by that? Goals that are too far don't exert a lot of motivational force. We call it the starting problem. You can think about a goal motivation as a, as a gradient that, that um, increases as the closer you are to the goal. It's called the goal gradient effect. Mm-hmm. Um, even pigeons that, that kind of peck for food would exhibit the same behavior and humans do as well. And so the goal can't be too far, which is why we use sub-goals. Sub-goals are closer so, so we can motivate. But the problem is if I'm still focused on, on and I feel good about the sub-goal that I just achieved, that might decrease motivation to continue. And so the the whoever is managing the discussion, the project or whatever, needs to balance these two forces and make sure that there's enough progress indication towards the end goal, but not too much emphasis on the sub-goal such that uh, you would lose motivation. Okay, so balancing the uh, celebration of small wins with focus on the end goal. Are there other elements to gauge? Uh, how about certainty as people progress through accomplishing a number of small wins, reaching agreement on a number of sub-issues, their certainty of reaching the end goal might increase. It becomes uh, more likely, more attainable. And you mentioned the starting problem, starting the process from a seemingly distant end goal and the need for sub-goals to help with the motivation there. How about changes in certainty as progress is made? Yeah, so, so there's, um, I've done some other work and others have well. There is, there is some motivating role to uncertainty. Too much can be debilitating, but enough is, is intriguing and, and can maintain and sustain motivation. Think about meeting a person and hearing for an hour all about their life or meeting a person and getting a five-minute sort of bullet point summary of, of who they are. Who would you like, which of these cases would you like to return and learn more about them and continue the, you know, meet again, right? It's, it's the person we have some uncertainty left, right? There's some curiosity um, to discover. Um, it's very similar with, uh, with respect to other things in life where uh, some uncertainty is, is useful. If you 
take out all the uncertainty, um, all the all the kind of will to discover. There's no curiosity involved. Um, you're you're putting away some sources of um, motivation for progress. Lots of pieces there. Um, so the I did you know notice I didn't actually take it to interpersonal relationship and dating and stuff like that, but it definitely <laughs> follows for that as well. Okay. How do we put this all together then? We have the end goal should be uh, attainable, yet there needs to be some uncertainty around it. Um, Sub goals are needed, but they can't be uh, reflected on too much. You need to keep the focus on the end goal. And then the gradient as well of of, um, getting closer to the goal will increase motivation to complete the goal. A lot of moving parts there, but it it makes an opportunity for, you know, somebody who's facilitating a discussion, a meeting or or whatnot. Um, There's some some rules that could be pulled out of there, I'm sure. But just those basic principles are powerful. Yeah. I mean, if you think there's uh, some analogies here, right? If you're standing in line at the grocery store, it's a very long line and you're somewhere in the middle, right? Looking at how many are in front of you can be demotivating, looking at how many people are, are behind you could make you feel better about your progress. Um, so in the beginning, when there's many sub goals ahead, you might want to focus on, on you know, how many achievements uh, we've already accomplished. Mm-hmm. And as you, as you move further and closer, you might want to focus on, well, look at how few remaining sub goals are still left. Look, you know, we know we only have to resolve these few issues and then, and then we're done. So you can build up and, and dynamically change the focus of the conversation on the parts that would increase motivation to reach the goal. That's great. I love that. Yeah. So the way to think about it is people tend to tunnel vision. And um, our goal is to sometimes tunnel vision and sometimes take people back and look at the big picture. Right? And, and, and by doing that, we can keep focus on the next sub goal that needs achievement while maintaining the overall motivation towards the goal by showing kind of the, the, the broad picture of, of progress made. Okay, that, that's uh, really interesting and uh, powerful stuff there. Let's keep moving and move on to resource depletion and your findings about the reliance on reference points, uh, compromise, and the attraction effects. Maybe, maybe you can start with just an example or, or an explanation of what resource depletion is. And then if you could just explain those, those findings on the reference point compromise and attraction effects. Yeah. So resource depletion is a, is an interesting area of research in psychology. Remember when I said that system two um, actually needs resources to operate and we have a limited amount of resources. It turns out that those resources can temporarily, temporarily be depleted Meaning if I, um, and here, here's a good example. Suppose I have a tough negotiation. I've concentrated a lot. I needed to maintain my focus in, in, you know, to a very high um, um, operating level f- for a few hours now. And now someone says, which restaurant do you want to go to? Like, I don't have, you know, I don't, I don't, feel like choosing. I don't feel like, you know, I feel, I feel depleted, right? I feel like I'm quote unquote tired, but I'm not tired because I could go for a, you know, five kilometer run 
without a problem. I just want to think. I don't want. I don't make decisions. That's the feeling that is sort of uh, representative of uh, of this state of depletion. And the interesting thing about it is because it's resources for system two being being depleted from a tough negotiation or a tough mediation process can impact my willingness, but also quality of choosing of a book, a restaurant, a gift to a friend that are not related. It's not related at all, but, but it uses the same resource because these are the resources for system two. So if you deplete system two, if you remember how we described the two system interaction, what you get, what you're left with is system one, right? So if I don't have the resources right now to override system one, I'll get system one responses. And so the paper you mentioned basically documents this and shows that many of what we know of are decision-making issues or biases that are caused by system one, by our automatic responses, those get much exaggerated. They get inflated when you're depleted. Mm -hmm. So if you had the same choice in the morning after you had your coffee, you just got into the office, you would be less likely to have a biased response. And what do you mean by a biased response? I'll give you an example. You mentioned the attraction effect. Imagine that, that there, you're deciding between two uh, speakers for your TV, and one of them is, is uh, you know, reasonable, low quality, but, but cheap, and one of them is very high quality and expensive. Okay? And, and here you have to make a trade-off how much you're really willing to invest in sound quality. Suppose I add a third speaker to that set, which is not really that good, say, you know, two years ago model, but I price it as quite expensive. Now you have a set of three items. One is reasonably good, but cheap. One is very, very good, but expensive. And one is not good, not so good, and also expensive. Suddenly, the good expensive one seems much better than, than before because compared to the expensive, not so great quality, it, it looks really good. It even dominates that choice. So we call it the attraction effect because adding a, what we call a decoy, a third option that, that makes the one of the two options we had before look much better in relative terms. And remember, we see the world in relative terms. And so the, the, the retailer can, can keep last year's model and price it you know, quite high, not as high as this year's model, but quite high to make this year's expensive model look much better, look more attractive. That's why it's called the attraction effect. And that's a, you know, by and large, a perceptual effect. It seems much better. Perceptual is system one. So at the end of the day, after tough negotiations, you're way more likely to choose the expensive speaker than in the morning after you've had your coffee. Okay, so what should be an irrelevant option, a poor quality, expensive speaker shouldn't even really be considered in the mix. But this decoy increases our likelihood of choosing the expensive product in this case. And it gives, it gives more weight to the option it's positioned closer to. Can you shift to the compromise effect? How about 
another option that's in the middle of the range? So compromise is a different effect, actually. Um, very different, and it's driven by different, uh, by different reasons. So the attraction effect is perceptual. It, it would grow when, uh, when, you're, when you've depleted resources for system two because you've exerted them. Um, compromise effect is when you have a cheap speaker, an expensive speaker, and one in the middle that's you know, in between them in quality and in between them in price, right? It's the compromise, if you, if you will. Now, the compromise effect happens not because that option seems better. It's not, right? It's worse on quality than the top one. It's more expensive than the cheap one. But it is the easiest to justify to someone else, right? Because it's the compromise. Justification is a system two consideration. So uh, the compromise effect actually decreases when you're depleted, as opposed to the attraction effect that's, that is increased. To your, to, to your point, if you're a person that doesn't care for much for sound, you might break the, the, the two-speaker question in favor of the cheap one, okay? So you would pick the cheap one. And so in the attraction effect context, you, you'd be more likely to move away from your natural choice if there's a decoy on the expensive one. In the compromise effect, you'd be more likely to uh, take the middle because it's easier to justify to someone in the morning after you had your coffee, but in the evening when you're depleted and you can't really bring yourself to make all these difficult trade-offs, you'd actually choose the cheap one. So it takes a little bit more effort to analyze that middle ground component, whereas for the other ones, when you're operating in system one, it's easier just to say, hey, this one's the best. This one's the worst. Yeah, this um, seems the best, right? Yeah. So more mental resources. We had uh, Brad Bushman on uh, a while ago, who was a researcher on aggression. And he did some experiments on the hangry and suggested that it was glucose, which was the depletion. So when you speak of uh, resources being depleted, fairly accepted that glucose is the is that is that still a, a debate on that one or yeah that's there's a debate on that one um there are some studies showing that basically implicating glucose is one of the resources needed but there are other studies that suggest that it, it, it might not be as simple as that uh, even when you're low in glucose mostly the brain gets the glucose it needs but uh, so that's still an open question okay. Okay. Still figuring that one out. But so when you speak of resource depletion, um, we, we can't say uh, any, anything too specific about how to, I was wondering if there's a, a tip on how to um, uh, stay out of that situation, right? Um, just give yeah. your brain a break or. Yeah, exactly. So there is an interesting study uh, done on parole decisions mm. showing that judges are, are, less and less likely to grant a parole but after they take a break they go back to the to the starting point and again they're they're more lenient and then it gets worse over time so uh you know when asked one of the leading researchers on the depletion field when when he was asked how to replenish he said you know i think a good night's sleep might do it <laughs> so that too is an open you know so the depletion uh, research is, is really interesting, but it's but certainly not complete. So there's a lot of open questions around that. To, to some, though, it's essentially 
when we're depleted mentally, uh, we shift into system one and that reliance on system one can influence our decision-making and choices and make them, would the word be poor or just, um, there's a lot of quote unquote intuition, intuition, I guess, at work there. Um, what's your feel on that as uh, system one being a, you know, reliable or, or worthwhile even at times perhaps? Yeah. So, you know, so, so our system one is not bad at all. Um, it's, it's basically intuitive is a good way to describe it. Um, so, you know, picking your, uh, your, your, your drink or food, uh, would go very well with system one. Um, I wouldn't go buying a house, you know, the, the, the more complex decisions, um, are the ones that would suffer, uh, because we want to override initial system one responses because for example, there's a house that looked really good because it was staged, but it might be close to an area that that's going to decline in value. That's not a system one consideration. That's a system to override. System one is, oh, you know, I go into this house, somebody baked cookies now, the house feels amazing, uh, smells amazing, it looks good, I like this house. That's a system one, right? Yeah. System two would be, wait a minute, but what's the, you know, what's the resale value and how much are the taxes here? And, you know, is this a good school neighborhood? Things like that, 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 um, that are not system one responses. Yeah, so there, there's certainly situations where we don't want to act on our, our, our system one gut feelings here about something that that's important. Now, if we don't want to fall into that trap and we want to sort of, in a sense, de-bias, we've mentioned uh, resource depletion and having a rest. Any other quick tips or strategies to have that deeper, deeper look? Yeah. So um, I'm probably not the first to say it, but if you, much of decision-making is about resolving trade-offs. If there were no trade-offs to make, you'd have a dominant option and you should probably choose the dominant option. But since proper decision-making often requires making trade-offs, writing down your, your trade-offs, I'm not saying you have to do a pro and con or whatever, whatever works for you, uh, ensures that you're at least engaging in system two-like processes. And if you find yourself you know, unable to really really think about or consider or conduct a pro and con table or whatever it is that is a good time to take a break let's talk a bit more about reference points one of the sort of um a bit of a debate or everybody has their opinion on this and distributive negotiation say you're meeting someone to make a, a purchase and should you put your offer out first so we're talking about anchoring here right um or should you wait and and let the other person make their offer do you have any thoughts on that in terms of uh, reference points? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a, a concrete example. Here in Southern California, I've not seen it elsewhere. When you go to buy a house, you see ranges of prices. Seller will entertain offers between X and Y. That's weird, right? Hmm. And you look into it and see how it happens. Well, the seller wants the Y price, which is higher. The realtor knows that the house will probably not sell at that price but they want to sell the house. So they convince the seller that they should specify a range from a lower price to that Y price that the seller wants. Mm. When they do that, the seller now, as you said, um, 
whether they want to or not, they update their reference point so that it doesn't feel like a loss if the price ends up being between X and Y, even though they really wanted Y and it's below what they really wanted, but advertising sort of stating that range changed their reference point. Now, whether to start with a price or not is a very strategic decision and it really depends on, do, on, on your goal and on your expectation of the other side's first offer. Um, if you would like to anchor the conversation higher, then you should be the first to, to start. And what do I mean by anchor? eBay had, when they had eBay auctions, they had, you know, the auction started at a very low price. Um, and then there was also the option at some point to do a buy it now price. If somebody pays that, they get it now. Once you've stated that buy it now price, you've caused everyone to think of higher prices if they didn't think about that high price. In some sense, you've changed the, the feasible range for consideration. And once you did that, then people are going to make higher offers because they've already thought about higher numbers in relation to this. So if you think that your first offer is going to be high enough, um, you should probably state it because that's going to drive the conversation if you're looking for a high price, if you're the seller. Uh, if you're a buyer, um, you're kind of stuck in a world where you don't know how much the seller actually wants to sell. And if you start too low, there might not be a negotiation. If you start too high, um, you might lose, right? So it really depends on your expectation of where the other side is going to come in. Mm -hmm. The price to see whether it makes sense to, uh, but, but the tip here from, you know, uh, you know, if you think about the eBay analogy is if you have a price that at that level, you would, you would close the deal and, and that, that is a credible price, then unless you, unless you, and, and, sorry, and you think that the other side is unlikely to offer more than that to begin with, then it might make sense to, to state that because that's going to help you get close to that price, if not close the negotiation early at that price. Yes, if all the, the importance here too should be restated that the reference point is that that point where the losses, anything lower, are going to be, and you give a figure of two times more painful than any gains that you make above it. Um, so that reference point's a really important spot. And just a little bit more on reference points then you, we, so we're talking about prices. That's pretty clear. Um, if you, you know, if you make $10 versus losing $10, that, that loss is a lot more uh, meaningful than the gain. Um, we mentioned agreements earlier. Can the reference point also be an emotional state or uh, expectations or something? What, what, what other forms can a reference point take? Right. So the reference point is, a reference point, right? It doesn't take form, but I, I'll, I'll change the question a little bit. Where does it come in? What kind of consideration, judgments does the refer reference point come in? And, it, and it's, it's primarily important in the domain of, of value. Now, value could be numeric in 
price or value could be emotional, right? So it, it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't need money or numbers to have a reference point. And to your, to your point, how do you, how is it that you have a reference point to begin with? Well, you come into a negotiation, say, with some expectation on, on what's going to happen, actually a set of expectations. You um, think about, you know, uh, you know, if you think about, for example, how much should someone pay you to help an older lady cross the street, right? That's, a, that's I, I don't know, right? It's ex- extremely hard to think about a price for that because we actually don't have a reference point for it. Mm-hmm. But if I said, well, how much does someone pay you to, to you know, work in a McDonald's, then your, your reference is probably minimum wage and what you make for an hour. And somewhere in between that is the feasible range. Because we can think of, of relevant comparisons, we can establish a good reference point. So sometimes in life, we have good comparisons and, and, and pretty well-established reference points. In others, we don't. And so what happens where we don't have reference point? We establish reference point from the local context. And that's why when you said before, putting, putting forth some information, putting forth some guidelines, um, creating expectations, framing a discussion in a certain way, can help establish reference points. Right. Otherwise, it'd be very difficult for someone to accept uh, or reject um, some offer because they don't know what to compare it to. That's a, a much better way to put it. It's a value, so not quantitative like money, but even emotional. So we can anchor people emotionally too, maybe setting expectations that they're not really going to like the options, the the offer we're about to present. They're not going to be happy about it, right? Anchoring their emotion, setting that reference point. Then when you do present the offer, depending on how well of a job you did framing it, it will likely not be as bad as they expected. So they don't slip down that lost domain of the reference. They, they don't experience the pain, which you mentioned was twice as bad as the gains from a reference point. So... Certainly lots of ways this can be applied. Um, Let's move on to choice architecture. Can you describe what that is then perhaps touch on whether there are any ethical concerns of applying research from this field, either into policy or just more generally uh, like negotiation tactics, for example? Yeah, so so choice architecture is essentially... The question of choice architecture is the question of how do I structure the decision-making environment, period. Now, choice architecture by a policymaker is how do I structure the decision-making environment so that uh, I, I maximize the success of a policy. Choice in architecture by, by a retailer is how do I structure the decision-making environment such that I maximize profit, in a decision maker, think about how do you want to even arrange the setting, Zoom, room, whatever. How do I arrange the setting so that I have a maximum success for my negotiation? So that's, that's in, in, a, in a broad, that's choice architecture. And it's, it, it, it builds on what we just discussed. It builds on the fact that humans, people, not homo economicus, would construct expectations, reference points, um, 
select decision strategies in part based on the context they are in, the architecture they are in, they find themselves in, because we don't actually have this super uber computer in our heads that can put an exact value of, on everything we see without context. As I said, an offer of 100 in the context of an offer of 10 is fantastic. In the context of an offer of 1,000 is lousy. So uh, everything's relative, and that's why choice architecture has the potential to have big effects on decision makers. Now, is it ethical? One thing to note, which, which is super important, everybody or many people who ask the, the ethicality question overlook, is that whether you want it or not, there is always choice architecture, whether it's by chance or whether it's by someone's design, but there is always choice architecture. The default architecture for every environment already exists. Right. The question now, can you improve this to maximize success of the policy, to maximize profit, to maximize success of a negotiation? Right. What do you need to do knowing what we know about different aspects of the choice architecture to facilitate better choices, to facilitate higher likelihood of success and things like that. Has it been used at the, at the policy level, any sort of specific application of, of this research or? Yes, there are many. A famous one is organ donation. It turns out that a lot of people, um, when, they, when they're not sure what to do, they just go with the default. And uh, an interesting study showed that in countries where the default um, for the, would you be willing to donate organs if you die in a car accident? Um, the default is no, and you have to change it to yes. In other countries, the default is yes, and you can opt out of that. And what they showed is there's a big difference in proportion of people who agree to donate organs if they, God forbid, die in a car accident, in countries where the default is no, because it's a difficult decision, people are not sure how to solve it, and they stick with the default. It was shown in investment opportunities. If people don't know, they have several investment opportunities for their retirement plan. If there are, say, three, they tend to divide them, divide their retirement savings into a third, a third, a third, or more broadly, one over N. Why? Because they don't really know what to do. And so, the, so they go with sort of the simplest policy possible. Now, if you know that there are some investment options that are safer, and you think that people should have slightly safer investment portfolios for retirement, then you can default to 50% on the safe and let them then divide 50% to others. Um, and, and people, of course, can change that. But the, the effect of the default is... is very, very strong. And so you get a lot more people with slightly more sound investment retirement portfolios if you put some thought into how you create that choice environment. Interesting. This is system one at work again, then. This is a, the default provides an easy decision, essentially, and they, the, the lazy system two stays out of it and they just go with the default. Is that um, a simple explanation or... That is a simple explanation. Interesting stuff and, and powerful and, um, and can be applied to anything, really. Yeah. 
Okay. I know we're sort of running into about an hour here. Do you have any general tips on how people might make better decisions? You know, the interesting thing about better decisions is, let me take a step back. A lot of the research on decision-making basically documents and tries to understand why do people deviate from what some models would think is the optimal behavior. A lot of that could be that the model is not a good fit of the world and people care about, you know, for the most, the easiest deviation from the homo economicus is I care about the welfare of others, mm. right? Which, which, is, which is not easily incorporated into that model. You can, but it's not there in the original Adam Smith, homo economicus, self-interested agent. One of the important tips is that better is subjective and it's subjective for you. So you need to decide, we talked about goals, what are your goals? What is better for you? Until you do, you do that, system two doesn't know what to correct for. Right. So if you come into a, say, a negotiation with, I know exactly what my goals are, what, what will be a good outcome for me or for the person I represent, um, you'll be much more likely to obtain that then if you're not sure what, what is good for you, because then you're more likely to make errors and, and not correct them because your system too, your manager, doesn't know what to look for. Right, that's that's a great tip. This this topic's in, incredibly interesting and um, you've given so much so much already to, to stew on there um, and apply. Th- thanks so much for coming on. And if uh, people want to find out more about you and the work you're doing, where, where can they find you? So in the world of the internet, I'm on the internet. Yeah. I'm at UC San Diego. You can always find me here. Um, my email is on the website. Very happy to, to respond to uh, questions and follow up on conversations. Right on. Uh, thanks again, On. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more from international experts digging into a range of topics on conflict, power, and persuasion, subscribe to your favorite podcast app or visit us at cn.org. That's C-I-I-A-N dot O-R-G.